0: Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early-stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Aaron Pierce, who's the founder and CEO of Pierce Aerospace. Aaron, welcome. Thank you, sir.
0: Why don't we start with a quick pitch for Pierce Aerospace? So Pierce Aerospace is developing remote ID technology for drones. And what that means is that we can identify who's who in the airspace, making drones not anonymous so that all of those sky robots can bring us our packages that we order offline. Who's a customer for you? So Congress mandated that every drone, basically every drone above half a pound has to have remote ID on that. And the FAA is currently going through and doing the rulemaking process for that right now. So as we as we continue to move forward, literally every single drone that is doing anything in the airspace above a half a pound will have to have this technology on it.
1: So me as a individual hobbyist with a drone, I might reach out to you
0: to, to do that or a company might reach out to you to do that right. for, for a fleet? So the companies themselves... That's who we're mostly engaged with that would end up having that tech on board so that you as a user don't have to really think a whole lot. It just happens and works so that you're then able to comply. Might have to do a login thing every once in a while, but uh, an initial registration. But the goal is to make it as easy for you to be in compliance with the rules as possible because we know most people want to do that. So as a customer for you, an OEM? OEMs, uh, service providers, unmanned traffic management companies. We're really an integration. Wait, what's an unmanned traffic management company? So there's several of those that are out there. Um, I think the best way to describe them that actually makes sense to folks who don't is great drone. There's a few that have apps on your phone right now. AirMap, UAS Sidekick, Altitude Angel. There's Far more than that. So sorry if anyone's listening and I didn't catch you, but there's some apps on the phone where you can open up. It'll show you what's going on in the airspace around you. And you can see what type of airspace you're in as well. If you are even, you know, do you have the certification from the FAA to go fly there? Or are you okay to go fly in that airspace as a as a recreational pilot? And you can use those apps to request access to fly in those airspaces as well if you're near an airport for so. Sure. For example, okay, got it. So those are a customer. As this whole world really starts to commercialize more, which is remote ID is the enabler for that. That's the kind of last piece of the puzzle to be able to get Amazon, UPS, FedEx, any of those folks to deliver a package to you. The remote ID is the critical linchpin technology for that. And you know, we we look at that delivery market. Uh, We we look at all of those different commercial applications that occur there, and we are an underlying enabler of all of that. Our biggest first moving customers, though, are on the government side and specifically in defense. They have a distinct need for figuring out who's who in the airspace as well for the types of things that they do.
1: Right. And then is your technology just software and you're working with oems and all those other people to get the devices registered by some thing that already exists on the drone or are do you also have a hardware component that gets installed on the device
0: right so we are pure focused on software it's kind of funny because we do a little bit of hardware for internal D to make sure that it can work elsewhere but we're pure software with okay. this Good.
1: this is just for me to understand, kind of load the business model in my head. So yeah, very, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Hit us with some current status. Where are you at in terms of the business? Any, any new metrics you can share that might help a listener kind of understand? Are you
0: one person in a garage? Do you have a whole team behind you? Where Where is the business? Yeah. So we've got five people, five employees, and then we've got a crew of about 10 contractors. So we can accordion as demand comes in. When we originally started this company, back when we first met, we were doing a digital logbook. And, you know, we've evolved heavily since then. And, you know, happy to say that as we have went through that evolution process, we found literally some of the best people in the world in the drone industry to pull onto the team for developing this technology and moving it forward and policy and regulation as well. So I'm super happy about the team. I literally, like, look at the Slack channel every morning and, like, we have awesome people, like... I can't believe that awesome person's on the team. Congrats. So, that, that does feel good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all, that's super feel good. Um, as far as where we've been at recently, um, last year we won a Air Force contract for our work. We are progressing forward in some of the defense work as well. Um, we did an experiment uh, with the U.S. Army last month. We are continuing to iterate on that and we'll engage with them again here later this fall. That one's super cool, but I can't talk about it. Sorry. Understood. So we've we've been quiet. I have to assume you can't talk about any of those, just to be clear. Most of them, no. Yeah. So okay. We've we kind of had a feeling that we'd wind up with some of the defense work. We didn't realize how closely and how vital what we were doing would end up being for that side so it's uh it's been very interesting to see some of the conversations that we've gotten into that that's been a real exciting point for us uh, because it's not just there but we see how that will spin out into the commercial sector then and on the commercial sector we've been moving pretty Very quietly, but very nicely as well. We've got well over 30 different LOIs for integration with us in the future. Uh, Two large ones, which we announced this summer, were with Altitude Angel. Uh, They're an unmanned traffic management company that services uh, the UK and Europe. And then uh, another one that we announced with a drone delivery company out of India called Red Wing Labs. And uh, they, they look at a global picture from their operations for delivering medical goods.
1: Awesome. And then I think b-
0: before we turn on the mics, you'd mention you are bootstrapped, not venture backed, correct? That is correct. Uh, we have been completely bootstrapped to date, which has been fun and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, happy to get into that. Some of the mechanics of how one does that a little later, if yeah. uh, if that's of interest to the listeners. And, but yeah, we're We're completely bootstrapped. We're the, as far as I know, we are the only bootstrap company to actually function at the levels that we do in the industry. Um, We, like, I have generals call me to seek advice on how we do this sort of stuff. On the commercial side, on the industry committees and everything, we hold a vote that is equal to Google and Google, Amazon, all those folks. Uh, So it's been really exciting. And we are one of the only drone companies to uh, actually be in the black as of, from last year. So uh, that was, that was pretty exciting as well for us. So small, scrappy team, but not losing money. And that's, uh, and in a position of influence and in a position of influence. So that that's all a wonderful place to be at, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, dude. It's amazing. Uh, congratulations.
0: When did you first get started? When did we meet? Was that two years ago? Uh, I think it was 2016. I don't remember exactly when, but that we started the company in January of 2016. It was originally a digital logbooking company. Talk about that evolution and some of those pivots. Yeah, so we, I started from that spot because we knew that data was a huge, huge and continues to be a huge topic in the industry. The FAA needs data to go build regulation to enable commercial activity. So, I thought the best way to do that was with a logbook. It's the way aviators have collected data for 10 decades, 100 years. Uh, so, we, we started looking at, at that in ways to make it more tech-oriented in terms of how we could pull information that could really help move regulation down the road, as well as provide useful feedback to a customer. A piece of that was identification. And I think we were the only one that was really looking at identification seriously back then. And we knew that it was a, going to be a huge monumental component to this whole thing. We didn't realize how big it would be at the time in 2016, but it, for, for that particular year per se. But we knew that it was going to be big. And we saw that ICAO, the United Nations Aviation Agency, Put a call for white papers out on remote ID on identification, and I was like, "Huh, that's funny." They're thinking of the same thing that we were. Let's I shot off a couple-page white paper just on a whim. Didn't really think anything <laughs> would come of it. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call with an invitation to go to Montreal to present in front of civil aviation director generals from all around the world, and was up there with you know NASA. Boeing, the country of France, a representative from France, all looking at this. And at the time, I was a one man shop and I was like, "Okay, that's pretty that's pretty crazy and important. We we started to get significant interest from commercial sector as well as the defense side out of that and. Uh, late in 2017, then we made the commitment to pivot to focus purely on remote identification. I got invited to come in and be an entrepreneur in residence for the TechStars. Uh, at the time, it was the TechStars Autonomous uh, Technology Accelerator with the U.S. Air Force. It's now just the Air Force Accelerator. Better branding, moving. My- <laughs> where Where was that? That was in Boston. Okay. So went went out to Boston for four months, helped Techstars set up that program, engaged with the defense side for business development uh, for the accelerator, as well as the 10 companies that were in the accelerator. Uh, I am not an engineer, so that's my forte in being able to help those companies. And then we really started to spin faster as we moved out of that. And can I just ask a couple of questions about that? Was that a... <clears throat> was that a non-dilutive
1: accelerator? Uh, what what was that experience like? So I was staff on the accelerator. Oh wow. Yeah. So they so you like you really helped launch it. You yeah. weren't you weren't just batch number one, but you were making it happen. Yeah, we were helping make it happen.
0: Went to DC, presented on this in front of all sorts of folks, really got helped get the thing launched off, went out, found additional companies to introduce to the PM and MD to help you know, for the subsequent year, that, uh, that sort of thing, including some business development with some of the companies itself that were in the accelerator itself. So helped. It uh, was part of the team that launched that great team. All you guys are awesome. If you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and then went full steam. I was still working on Pierce aerospace and the remote ID piece. Then that's, they pulled me in because of what we were doing yeah. on remote ID and I mean, some of those companies, uh, as well as other ones within TechStars, that we were able to develop partnerships through there, uh, and we're right back at it, coming out of the accelerator uh, to the point where we were able to win an Air Force contract and have gained significant traction on that defense side since. Awesome
1: there's a number of ways to start the conversation around competition in the market landscape that you live in. I, I guess I'll start where I normally do. When you think of competitors for Pierce Aerospace,
0: who or what comes to mind? So it's an interesting question, and this is maybe a little different than other startups. We're very closely linked with the regulator on the product that we are developing. So we know that as this commercializes out, as the FAA eventually puts a rule out for this, as well as you know, other civil aviation authorities, that we will be very closely related with how that product works in the marketplace. We, we actually view ourselves as a utility more than anything. And in that space, we're an integrator to the rest of the industry. So we're that quiet underlying thing that most people just don't know is there and it just works. Uh, so... From that perspective, we really look at, okay, who else has an ability to do this? And the only the only serious competitor that we see is Talus. And Talus is a French aerospace and defense giant to the tune of tens of billions in revenue every year. So, you're just like you. I mean, you're just right there with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got it. So, it's, yeah. Uh, we know the team over there. They're you know, I mean, they're cool guys, I could grab a beer with them anytime. But uh, we know that there are there are real competition. At the same time, though, we think that we've got a little bit of a better angle to work with industry from a more holistic standpoint, because we are purely niche focused on remote ID alone. And our philosophy is that that information is a very private and protected type of information. None of these drones in the airspace are going to be anonymous, but we want to make sure that privacy is protected right. still. And also to not do things with the data that are, you know, other types of tech business models, like uh, taking that data, selling it, you know, Facebook style uh, relationships with data. That's a no go in our opinion. And uh, we don't, we, we look at being guardians of that ID information and helping to serve that customer better by protecting it and working closely with that regulator to make sure that it's used only in the effective manners in which remote ID needs to be used in the airspace. So
1: there are a couple of things that I pulled from that. So Talus is the main competitor coupled with you working very closely with regulators here in the United States well as it sounds like potentially even globally and kind of that view as a utility. What does that mean when you think of a go to market strategy? Are, like, are you thinking of? Because I've never heard somebody, at least on this podcast, talk about their startup as a utility. Like, how does that change the way you think about what it means to go to market? And and how does that change? Like, are, are you thinking I have? From a regulatory perspective, I have the United States as a customer, right? Because I have to be aligned with regulators there. And then I have Canada as a customer. And then I have the EU as a customer. Like, how do you balance thinking of your partnership at that level and what you're trying to do from a from a position of influence, from a regulatory perspective? From no, I need to be talking to individual businesses and or government entities to try to win contracts. Because there's a little bit of a tension there, right? Like in where you spend your time and focus and and stuff like that.
0: Right. Yeah. And absolutely. From the regulatory side, you know, we're very open. We communicate what we're doing to those folks um, on the government side that are decision makers and stakeholders on on that government side all the time. It's interesting relationships because it's typically one way, at least in terms of where the where those government agencies are at in the processes of establishing rules. One way, meaning you're
1: telling them what you're doing, what you're seeing. Correct. And then at some point in the future, they're going to say, "Okay, based on your input and everybody else's input, here's what we've decided.
0: I don't know if that's the best way to funnel it down, but yes. So we've got more back and forth with some parts of the government, but others, it's a one way. And it's a, here's what we're doing, and the response is appreciated. And we keep them updated with that. uh, But we don't necessarily get anything back on that. Others, we get direct customer feedback from that. And that's very useful in terms of how to best serve, especially, say, that defense customer. From a commercial standpoint we've identified several folks, several companies that really like the same philosophies that we stand with and those are the ones that typically come to us first. We've also found ourselves in a place where we're working with other aerospace and defense giants that are out there. So, like there's four of those that we have very regular conversations with and are doing some quiet things behind the scenes with which have been very fun and interesting. And you know, when looking at how this regulatory government side and how this, you know, effectively tech startup and, and commercialization side come together, we look at a business model where we've really got only a handful of sales channels that end up coming back to let's say you or me as the regular person, just based on how we interact with airspace. Uh, So it's highly complicated in how it's done. But in terms of getting to that end user, that piece isn't as complicated as it would uh, perceive to be. There's really a handful of folks that we need to engage with to be able to do that. And we know most of them already and interact with them on a regular basis. You'd mentioned you primarily work with companies that share some of the same philosophies that you and your team have. What are those philosophies? Uh, So that's the, let's not use personally identifiable information as a business model to sell that data. That's a positive trend that we're seeing out of some of the companies in the space, which is really nice. And, you know, we, we look at that PII as a, that shouldn't be a competitive advantage that one company holds over another And as an independent niche provider of that information to industry, we're not in that business of trying to compete with that. And industry then doesn't get into a business of, we're going to try and grab that backend piece of this system and not make it available to others or give competitive advantage to our own system over another one. If they are trying to do multiple lines of business and that compete with others in the industry and also grab that remote ID piece. And that's where we see our, our uh, real value. Uh, one of the key value points that we can provide to industry and regulators at the same time is that by engaging and working with us, there's not, say, an undue burden going on to the consumer and there's not unfair advantage that's going on in the marketplace then between different companies. And we've seen positive feedback on that stance so far. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need. Not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at FullStackPEO.com.
1: All right, I'm not sure how to ask this next question. And I want to be careful. Like, I want you to know my intent. Like, there's a chance that this question could sound insulting. Go. And I, and I I want you to hear loud and clear. That is not the intent. What I would like to do is I'm going to ask you a couple of questions on a theme, which is uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and set up now. There's a couple of things I'm thinking through as I'm talking to you. So I met you two years ago. You're pretty young. You're very smart. You live in Indianapolis, Indiana. There is Nothing in that first experience with you that would have indicated to me that you would be helping set international policy for this kind of technology and and data. I would not have expected that you would have had a set of life experiences leading up to this point that would position you to go ahead to head with Talus and be on panels and with Google and like. So the the thing that's interesting to me, there's two things that come out of that that are super interesting to me that I would love for you to talk about if you can. The first one is, man, you think big, like in dream big. And that is a pretty rare, in my experience, that is a pretty rare thing. It's hard for me. Like it's something I struggle with in terms of balancing. Like, you know, if you take one of, one of our companies like full stack, right. Where I think I, so I have a vision for full stack and what we can do in this market—that is—I I think a pretty cons- it, it is aggressive, but it, like even saying that, it's a still a pretty conservative vision for what that business could be. And there's certainly other people who would look at that and be like, "Wait, why are you just thinking about this market? Why are you thinking nationally? Why aren't you thinking, bi- you know, why aren't you thinking bigger?" Which is a great challenge for me sometimes. So one thing I see is is like your appetite and vision for what this business could be is is much bigger than I think many on entrepreneurs when they approach a problem like this would wouldn't they would their self-talk would be i'm not smart enough i'm not old enough i'm not experienced enough and like you clearly have found a way to get past that so i think the first question would be how like what like over the last couple of years if you've as you've gone on this ride and experiences what have you
0: had to tell yourself or do or surrounded yourself with to allow you to do that So I guess the first big thing that I'd want to throw out there and not insulting. uh, So understood on the question. Yeah. um, uh, Is those same, like I'm not old enough, experienced enough. All of those same like, you know, self-doubt type of. Yeah. The imposter syndrome stuff. right? Yeah. That runs through my head and everyone else's head. So that's an equal playing ground that everyone has. If someone doesn't have those types of questions, I like, that's a red flag. So I think having those questions is fine. It's making sure that when you get up out of bed in the morning, that you can, you know, play the mental jujitsu with yourself to not let that hold you back. And that is the number one challenge that is the biggest competitor to any entrepreneur is that mental thing within themselves and i don't care what industry what someone's trying to do how big small whatever it is that's a universal type of challenge that has to be overcome and it doesn't have, like it's something that everyone will continue to deal with going on, it's not just a like, oh, I got over that one morning. It's like, no, that I mean, do you still struggle with that sometimes yourself every day? Yeah. So no matter where you're at in the timeline, that's still a thing. So I think that's one thing that, you know, definitely needs to be thrown out there and understood and appreciated. And, you know, it's opened up by folks. So I I think that's you know, big takeaway from that one. So, on the, on the defense side, for example, I grew up in a family of, you know, uncles, grandfather, military officers, Air Force officers. So, like, I take my, I go with my grandfather out to his reunions every all the time. I volunteered with uh, Indiana Air Search and Rescue here in Indiana, helped restore and fly Huey helicopters and engage with vets all the time. Air crewed on Huey helicopters. we restore them to flight. That's so um, badass. So, right. It's fun. <laughs> so, I've always grown up around that and like as a little kid would be holding conversations with retired colonels and generals that, you know, flew twice the speed of sound with five nuclear weapons strapped to the belly of their aircraft and that was a normal thing for me. So, as we got into a business perspective in dealing with the department of defense. Like I don't, and this is maybe a Midwestern thing as well. When I meet someone who's of high stature or a celebrity business, celebrity, Oh, that sort of thing. I don't, my, I don't have that natural instinct to like go grab my phone and ask for a selfie. That's kind of gross. And I can hold a conversation with those people as a normal human being and like not be shaking like a leaf while shaking their hand and with a sweaty palm. And that's not really been an issue. And they're just people. And uh, I think that really having that understanding and learning that understanding very early was able to definitely be helpful in how to navigate that space from the people side. And that's, I'm not an engineer. So I... And the things that we've been doing so far have been heavily rooted in the standards, the regulation, the policy. That's where we, that's where our strengths are, some of our strengths are at. And that requires being able to navigate those human problems and do the social engineering of preparing a company and an industry to be ready for the engineering. And that wasn't done by a lot. Of folks that are in the industry. Uh, As they started getting rolling, as VCs started pouring money, and we've seen companies that have struggled and some that have failed now because they got into this trying to engineer a, a solution to a problem that wasn't even defined yet. And then scrambling because the scrambling to go find that problem yeah. and going all over the place instead of being able to focus on one thing, which we we figured out how, okay, here's the biggest problem in the industry. It's directly related to what we started doing. We know how to solve this, and our skin in the game is not that of other companies. so we can navigate this space to best serve that. I look at this as, you know our when we started doing the logbook we like coined our uh, little company statement whatever you want to call it slogan as log your journey and we've really kept that since the logbook days because it is a journey and that's how we view this i mean my my undergrad was in creative writing so i didn't know that yep <laughs> so this is writing a story on our side and I'm a big fan of uh, stories where like my friends will be like, no, that uh, I'm not going to get into that because I need an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of characters. So I can kind of internalize that and navigate it uh, in my head for how we go about working through this from a business perspective then and draft it as we go. And have vision for where the story goes and keep drafting to that vision so that's i don't know if that helps answers or presents other questions but oh tons of other questions
1: but uh that's okay that it's a that's a great answer thank you the second part of that kind of line of questioning so the the first part is like how do you dream is is as big as you've as big as you you've you found the business to be. That the second part is a little bit around then continuing to navigate the complexity of the environment you're in with a small team, without venture capital, with a, which is great. But you're like we we bootstrap here as well in many of our companies. Like so, I, I love that, but it does create an additional set of problems that capital can help solve. Oh, yeah. Right, so. Yeah. Like the, with all of the things that you're juggling with a small team without a bunch of, you know, capital to go grow that team aggressively, I would love your thoughts on um, how you navigated that today, how you think you'll navigate that in the future, what, what you think that looks like. Because I think that's another thing that a lot of
0: founders and, and small startups really struggle with. It's been interesting. We are, we remain lean in what we do uh, it helps that this is software so we don't have to go you know start up a manufacturing production line we've found folks who have the same have the ability and mindset to want and go and bootstrap and that in itself is a very difficult thing to find and there's a lot of risk aversion even in startup world about bootstrapping. And that is something that I personally would like to see get alleviated some and start to see a cultural shift towards that because you can do a lot with your bootstraps. You can email, call and set up meetings and go walk in and talk to very important people with your bootstraps. You, you don't need to have a whole bunch of VC money to do that. And, In doing it from that perspective, you can start to build something of significant value so that when you do need to go talk to a VC or an angel or or funder that it's like, hey, this is, uh, you know, more than idea, more than boilerplate. And in our case, especially since it's so regulatory linked in a brand new industry, I shouldn't say brand new, they've been flying drones for 100 years, but in a industry that's preparing for mass commercialization. We can do a lot to position ourselves and get it in in a position so that we can, if we go and take outside funding, we can really turn that into significant value with far less risk associated with it than if we had just started engineering products, right, and go right off of the bat from that. So I, I'd like to see more of that personally. We've worked off of a model called Slicing Pie that was crafted by a guy named Mike Moyer. I am a huge advocate for it. It's about the most fair way to bring people in to go start and bootstrap something. And it gets rid of that whole like, well, you take 50% and I'll take 50% because that's fair. And that's not how... Any company works and there's always a challenge around that. But Mike Moyer figured out a way and went through lots of iterations and study on this to get a method in place for fair and equitable bootstrapping a company in a fair and equitable manner. And... I would highly, highly recommend looking at that for any companies that are even just not companies yet. You know, you're not if you're not a company yet, you've got an idea with you and a buddy or two. Slicing pie, is that a book? Is that a yeah. set of blog post? It's a book. It can be if you just Google Slicing Pie uh, and andor Mike Moyer, it'll pop right up. On. And there's a couple different books on, on it that goes through and in-depth on the methodology of it, but essentially it splits out equity of company on time and resources inputted into that in terms of how you create the value of building what this company is and distributing that in a fair manner. You know, if you're only going to work 20 hours a week where the other two folks that are coming into the team are going to put 40 in, it works out in making sure that everyone's getting their fair slice of that pie. Got it.
1: What do you think when you look... Oh. This is tough for your industry. When you look 24 months in the future, what do you think your biggest challenge is going to be?
0: So there's, there's some regulatory questions that have yet to be answered. Honestly, I, industry or company? Company. So company-wise, uh, I think our biggest challenge will be growing the team, which is a good challenge and problem to have. Making sure that we can continue to add additional people to the team that are of the high quality talent and uh, personas that can help execute and move this thing forward. And then utilize you know, working with that talent to really start to scale this and get product integrated with customers. That's going to be, I think, the biggest challenge, which I'm excited to. It's a good challenge to have. I think industry as a whole, their biggest challenge really is not going to be regulatory. It's going to be public acceptance of, are we okay with having drones flying over and delivering packages in our backyards? Are we? I think, so the remote ID helps with that because it helps to let you know that that's not like the creepy kid from down the street who's trying to (laughs) spy in your backyard. (laughs) Unless you think Amazon is the creepy kid. Yeah. Unless. Yeah. um, I think there's some significant philosophical things that uh, I think tech is an overall thing need to look at in terms of, okay, what are we collecting? Why are we collecting it? And what are we going to do with that data that we collect? And I think that is addressable in this industry and so many a tech overall, and it will funnel down into this one because you have aircraft that have sensors on them that are flying around delivering packages now. And I think getting the public, you know, public acceptance of that is the biggest challenge for the entire industry. And, From our perspective, we can help to let that public know that, hey, that aircraft that's coming into my backyard right now is authorized. And it's got the socks that I ordered online on it uh, or whatever. (laughs) Uh, So that is the real big thing. I jokingly say that the first time that a drone delivers a six pack to the backyard barbecue, like everyone's going to be sold then. But... Um, That is compelling. Yeah. So not that I'm advocating for that. I am now. Okay. (laughs) I'll go on the record. That sounds amazing. But yeah, I I think that that first time that, you know, highly desired product X and you're like, I need this now. I had a conversation with a friend of mine while we were out hiking around um, just outside of San Jose and Silicon Valley. And we're both redheads got out of the car. It was a blazing hot day with full sun. And We both, like, we didn't think of it. And I was like, hey, dude, you got any sunscreen? it's like, no, man. Like, it's usually in the car, but it's in my other backpack right now. (laughs) We both got burned. But I was like, hey, how quick and easy and fast would this be for us to just hit something on the phone and a drone flies up from Silicon Valley and gets us a little bit of that SPF, like 85? Yeah. And uh, that would have been great. But whether it be sunscreen, six-pack, or, you know, whatever that product X is, I think that once that gets into someone's hand quickly when they need it, that there's going to be a you know huge cultural aha, and that we'll start to see this be a thing. I don't think we'll see every package that's delivered via drone, but I think we'll see a significant portion of them at some point.
1: Do you think you'll see that proliferation first come on the commercial side, like with Package delivery with drones, or do you think you'll see it more on
0: the first response? First response in medical. Public safety. Yes. Without a doubt. It's already occurring uh, outside of the United States. Talk about it. So some of our partners over at Red Wing Labs, they have already been delivering medical goods in Papua New Guinea. Uh, They've got some other projects in play right now to deliver vaccines, other, uh, you know, blood. We've seen organs delivered by drones. These are things that we'll see. What? Yeah. So like inter-hospital organ transfer, much faster, safer, just slap that cooler on the bottom of the drone, take off and go. Even in an urban environment like Indianapolis, if we have drones that have, say, AEDs on them, if those get to a patient that's having a cardiac event in 60 seconds before an ambulance arrives, that's a significant amount of time in a cardiac event. And that could be the difference between a life or a death. And I used to be an EMT. So I'm huge on the let's use this and first responder and public safety. Delivery of Narcan comes to mind for getting that out to families in need, especially in areas where first response may be a, it's not five minutes away like it is in Indy. Or if Indy's got a busy night going on, you're looking yeah, – I don't know what our response times are, so I don't want to necessarily it's say It's okay. It,
1: you can go Just with, ex- example, you if, can go with my house where I live. It is uh, – I know this for a fact because we've called an ambulance. It is 32 minutes for an ambulance to get to my house. So, uh, you know, yeah, conceivably so a cop
0: is the same as – you know, like anything. Yeah. You then have to have the question of do we have the people in the house who can effectively administer CPR for 32 minutes straight? I've done it before for an hour straight with tag teaming with another person in a hospital environment. And that is difficult. And that was with AEDs uh, at the same time. And it required a team and we were beat. So, and I was like, I was training to try and get onto fire departments at the time. So I was in much better shape then. So like, I'm just, you are straight up uh,
1: putting down the challenge for the most interesting man in the world on this I, podcast. I just want you to know <laughs> that. Like,
0: I just like just know that that's my big takeaway from this. Thank you. I I would disagree, but I find much more interesting people all the time. Um, all right, keep going. But it's just like painting the picture of how difficult that is for like a, if it's thirty two minutes in response time, like if that's a relative over for Thanksgiving, whatever it may be, you want to get that there sooner. And that's, I've done that. I have I know what the response looks like in the field for a, you know, over opioid overdose and they're not pretty and getting those life-saving drugs, life-saving equipment yeah, yeah. Uh, that can be delivered by drone very quickly is a game changer in an EMS environment. And I think it's some it it's something that I think that a lot of EMTs and paramedics will welcome uh, because it really gives them greater abilities to help to work with that patient uh, and gives greater success chance of that patient's uh, patient survival.
1: How do you think that to that cultural conversation of how comfortable are we with drones flying over our backyard, whether they're for package delivery or drug delivery, right? So like we'll, we'll take out the the, tra- the the transport package for a second or the payload, but how do we have that conversation? Where is that conversation happening? Is that going to happen on a city by city level, county by county level? Is that, is that the federal level, all of the above? Like how do you see that unfolding?
0: Yeah, it, it's definitely all of the above. We've seen companies also engage with it in... Ways to maybe try and benefit a business model for them. Because it feels to me a lot like the autonomous vehicle conversation. It is. Right? It, so, and I want to make that point as well. Yeah. You're going to see autonomy and true autonomy. I'm not a tr- not exactly sure when, but you'll see it in the air before you'll see it on the ground. 100%. It's easier and safer to do in the air than it is on the ground. There's less variables involved. I would keep that in mind in terms of where you m- might see technology transferring from one sector into another and how it it engages across that. But from that piece, the the conversation piece, it, it occurs at all levels. The FAA has control of airspace from grass up. So your blade of grass leveling up, that is FAA control airspace, which a lot of homeowners, cities, they... They haven't dealt with anything like that before and never really realized it. Or, And it's it's something that's an evolving conversation. And the way that this goes about will likely be a little different in each locale. The, when you get into low-level airspace, you see very different types of airspace footprints and obstacles and challenges from city to city, city, to city even. So I think you'll see some variation amongst the local operation. But I think, and this is, I think, for whole of industry, as well as us being able to get goods or whatever interaction with the drone that we're doing, they can do far more than just delivery of goods. I think we're still going to see FAA oversight, but with really hyper-local airspace utilization with some of the UTMs, the unmanned traffic management companies, So and Temporal. Wise. So if there's a parade or even a house fire, you're going to see at some point, you'll see that airspace get redesignated very quickly by the folks that are engaged with air with that event uh, so that a new set of temporary rules gets set for that airspace. In some areas, I think it you'll see a little bit more of a regulatory piece put in. You may see air corridors in some areas where other areas That's not not necessary. An Indiana suburb may not need an air corridor. But downtown Manhattan, slightly more complex, low-level airspace. So those are two distinctly different pictures. And I'm not sure exactly what we'll necessarily see, but we'll see a difference in terms of how that airspace is organized and managed in in the future. All right, man, it's been 50 minutes. I have to let you go.
1: We're doing a part two at some point for sure. (laughs) There's no question. I still have tons of questions for you. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot. Super impressed. Just super impressed with the progress you've made and and what you're doing. I have a lot of respect for the path that you're taking. Thank you. And uh, tons of great information, both on your business and and what you and the team are doing, as well as on the industry in general. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: They can head to the website. I think we've got uh, an email up there for people to to get back at us uh, with. It's um, And then just... What is the website? Uh, pierceaerospace.net. Okay, perfect. Dot net. Spell Pierce for me real quick. P-I-E-R-C-E
1: aerospace.net. Okay. Aaron, thanks so much, man. This has been fantastic.
0: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, Startup Competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at StartupCompetitors.com.